Hello and welcome to episode three of Politics and Pedagogy. We're Louise Pears and Madeleine Labordon, who are hosts. We're very excited to share this last episode with you. When we were putting together this podcast, these were our dream guests. So we will introduce them in a moment. This is the final episode in the interviews, but we're going to wrap up with one more episode in the series where we'll be offering reflections on what we've learned from these really great conversations so far. So we'll just say thank you again to the sponsors of this series, which is the Decolonising Development Cost Action Group. And let's dive into the episode. So we have two wonderful guests today, the first being Dr. Olivia Rutazibwa, who is a Belgium-Rwandan international relations scholar and former journalist and the senior research fellow of the Johannesburg Institute of Advanced Studies in South Africa. Her research and teaching focuses on ways to decolonize international solidarity. Building on epistemic blackness as methodology, she turns to recovering and reconnecting philosophies and practices of dignity and repair and retreat in post-colony to theorize solidarity and anti-coloniality. She has published in various academic journals, is the co-editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Postcolonial Politics with our other guest today, Robbie Shalom, and the decolonization and feminism in global teaching and learning. And our other guest that we're super pleased to welcome is Robbie Shilliam, who's a professor of international relations at John Hopkins University. He's the author of Decolonising Politics that was released in 2021, and he's working on his new book, Move Out of Babylon, Rastafari Reason, Black Marxism and the Struggle for Global Justice, which will be published by Penguin in the next few years, hopefully. We thank you enormously for your time and joining us today. Yeah, Thank you so much. And our first question is super open. So really, we wanted to start with what does decoloniality mean to you? I'm going to go first. So thanks for having us. Yeah, I've written down some notes to organize my thoughts on this, but I'm not even looking at them. But I have to say that the most straightforward way I think that I've tried to address the stakes maybe before definition is that I think it's an ethos of politics. It can be an analytics, anything you want, but it's something to do with how we conceive who gets to live and who is disposable. So it's about life and death to some extent. And specifically in the academic context, I think decoloniality is about trying to not rectify because I'm not sure it's possible, but at least try to actively not participate in those aspects of knowledge making that contribute to both disavowing the fact that a lot of our knowledges participate in this adjudication of who gets to live, who gets to die, irrespective of what you do or anything like that, and to be much more explicit about that. And then in general, I would say it is also an an explicit way of re-engaging knowledge making in politics, ethos and stakes, rather than this point zero where you can just be interested in shit and then just think about it deeply, (laughs) something like that. So that's in general, but then obviously there's very grounded versions of this. Like, I think it might look slightly different when you try and do this in places like the LSE in London than if you do it somewhere else. It might, you know, look different to do this in this period of time where people are, to some extent, also pretending that everything is new and this is new thing. Or if we remember all the other decolonial moments that came before us. So life and death, and it is grounded, but it's something to do with being explicit about politics of life and death to some extent. Thank you. And Robbie, I just wondered for you, what does it mean? Well, picking up where Olivia just ended, it's probably important to think about the different words that we use to describe what Olivia just said and the kind of intellectual politics around them, right? So there's a certain propensity in academia to do, especially in kind of humanities and social sciences, to do turns, right? And the turns are usually, you know, at the end of the discipline, there's the phrase, fields change one funeral at a time, right? So there's the senior bit of it, yeah? But then there's the junior bit of it, so to speak, where people, early career people coming in, into an intellectual universe, are usually dissatisfied with how things are presented and certainly how they're institutionalised. And so they're looking for a turn, right? So there's a, you know, abolition turn. Before that, there was the decolonial turn. Then there was the post-colonial turn. Then there's the feminist turn. You know, and the turns keep going. 
but we would want to be careful to misapprehend the need to turn in academic institutions with the conflating that with projects and commitments in the political world. They're not the same thing. So one can find, you know, the idea of decolonizing in the 1960s in East Africa university system. And a lot of the conversations sound strikingly similar to now, right? Abolition and policing and violence is not a new thing. And the idea of abolition is not new. One might say it actually goes back to the late 1700s, if not before. But you know what I mean? Like, you know, black abolition and white abolition aren't quite the same thing. So much of the vernacular around what abolition is supposed to do for us now, which decolonial didn't, is more to do with an academic turn than it is to do with a politics turn. Right? And oftentimes these turns can be enabling and iterative and sometimes they can be, what's the word, erasures of issues which have already been ventilated and through which you know, various academics and intellectuals and organisers paid the price already. So I would just, when we're thinking about something like decoloniality, I would want to just distinguish, even if they're kind of entangled, but distinguish between this idea of turns when it comes to academic institutions, which, you know, early career people rightfully feel frustrated about, and then actual projects and politics which have a much more longer and sedimented existence than the turns in a university. Yeah, that's really interesting, that conversation about turns. I feel like I'm inundated with people who are forever talking about turns, and I guess it's like what are you turn in from and what are you turn in towards is never always that clear, is it, in that conversation? With the next kind of thing we wanted to speak about is how that approach to decoloniality shapes your approach to teaching and how you bring that into the classroom. I'm not sure. I think there's a number of ways in which one could imagine that. I'm not sure insofar as I don't know the difference between good pedagogy and decolonial pedagogy, Mm. right? Which is similar to, you know, a kind of good feminist pedagogy. So I don't know what if there is a distinction to be made. You know, sometimes people expect some kind of magic to happen. (laughs) Yeah, and I've been in interviewing committees where, you know, they want the magic person to come along and make all the students happy. And can you imagine making students happy over the last couple of years? Yeah. With some decolonial magic? Because if you you did, Olivia, then you better share that time. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I also think it has, and Olivia mentioned this, significantly different depending on different student demographics. For some demographics where what you're doing is you've got a very elite body of students in front of you, then deconstruction is probably the most useful thing to do. But if you haven't got elite or solely elite students, deconstruction is actually pretty toxic and damaging. So it also depends what kinds of, you know, is your student body international? How is it international? Is it elite international? Is it got a lot of low-income migrants, right, undocumented? I mean, it, it can go on. Is it regionally specific? Is where you're working in the issues that you're dealing with, does it have a very particular regional history which you need to actually run very close to? Maybe I'll I'll turn it around. I think maybe rather than being able to identify this is decolonial pedagogy, I can speak to elements of decolonial thought that are not exclusive to decolonial. Feminism was mentioned, whatever, that have inspired, I think, how I try to organize my classroom differently, but also how I look back on how I was learning. And I think the main thing there is maybe two things. Is One is this being more attentive of how hierarchy is reproduced in pedagogy. And that can be in how we invite students to engage with text or other sources, but also where we place ourselves, but also where we place their expertise. So where is the expertise in the classroom? That has changed a lot for me, right? So the way that I was taught was a classroom, 350 kids, Education was almost free, at least. So that's that's the other side of this story, because we're often talking about decolonial pedagogy in a deeply neoliberal university, which there is a deep contradiction there. But there is something to it where if it's almost or if it's affordable, often it's in such large numbers that a lot of what I'm going to say next might not even be possible. Right. But so teaching smaller groups in a context like the UK 
it feels like a luxury, but it then also means that, you know, you have more space to to try and think and experiment on, do I have to lecture about a topic by telling them first, these are the key things, or can I just limit myself to say, I'm going to force you to read these three texts, and then the class is about your interpretation of this. And maybe at the end, I might add some additional stuff that I got from staring at these things for 20 years longer than you, but that's it. Like, it's, it's not, but the collective expertise makes that whatever expertise I have by having this PhD title after struggling for 12 years is just an add-on and it's not the, the starting point. So, and the other thing, and, you know, I got that, I think it also comes both the hierarchy and also, and I often cite it, and I'll do it again, Robbie, even though you're on this call, but this, this distinction between knowledge cultivation and knowledge production as trying to make slightly more concrete what the difference would be between colonial and decolonial science has also helped me also how I engage my students with it's not about finding the truth or being able to explain that you're right or something like that but that we participate in this much larger project of continually adding prolonging cultivating stuff to know about something but you need to have a different purpose than just being the first one or the most you know innovative one and that's where the turns come in right so the, even teaching them to, to find a gap in the literature I'm like how, especially if you only do your research in English, how would you possibly know that nobody did this before you? Like, But that's also not the point. So to have myself, but also students be inspired in a much less competitive, but much more committed way to what they would want to find out, but they need to be able to explain why it matters. And, and that for me has made engaging in science in a very profoundly different way than how I would start. Yeah, And I have to say, it brings some joy in the classroom, weirdly enough, because I'm like, you're not in competition with anyone. Oh my God, what does this mean? Even I don't know, whatever. So something like that. Mm. I mean, just to pick up on that, you're bringing to mind, especially with undergraduate teaching, a distinction between, for example, teaching students political science and teaching students politics, right? Now, like at grad level or PhD level, you know, there is a need to teach a discipline right you know at least in part to teach a discipline because part of what you're getting a qualification in is a is a standing in a field right but undergrads that's not what you need to teach them at all I mean it's almost antithetical to the task and I think a lot of us tend to conflate our research our grad teaching and our undergrad teaching as if we need to teach undergrad students particular canons, whereas what they, what we really want to teach them is how to think more fluidly and deeply about politics, right? And that requires all the things that Olivia brought up. The one triumph I've ever had teaching undergrads is I had 600 students in an intro class the very first week of the academic year, and I'd been thinking, what is it that I could do which would get all these students talking all at once, right? It was a few years ago, right? So what I did was I played them Beyonce's Super Bowl clip, right? Do you remember that a while ago? <laughs> two YouTube clips, random YouTube clips. One of them saying, Beyonce is the fucking revolution. And then the other <laughs> saying, Beyonce is just black capitalism. And I got them, and no, just to turn to the, the people next to them and discuss it. Man, every single student was <laughs> It was incredible. It was incredible. And, you know, like, I'm sure my colleagues would have been horrified. That's what I was doing in the first. <laughs> but it got them talking in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise if you'd have started with, you know, no disrespect, Eric Hobsbawm, 20th, you know, like the short 20th century, right? So to Olivia's point is the cultivation, which means you have to kind of try and share where they're coming from as well. Mm -hmm. That's um, not a liberal thing and it's not about choice. No. My colleagues, not here, but some of my colleagues who are a little bit more traditional think that anytime you ask a student about their own learning process, you're engaging in neoliberalism. And, you know, there must be some space between 19th century Victorian virtue and 1980s Thatcher libertarianism. <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this, the canonical and the discipline stuff, right? And the funny thing is, I think most of the last 10 years I was teaching undergrad and for the last two years I've been teaching masters. But I've been doing the same with, with either of them, right? Because 
I think sometimes even when we specialize more, maybe that's also specific to the UK, but this attachment to what did that process mean exactly, whatever, so that the expertise comes in mastering somebody's other's thought. <laughs> what I've realized by doing this more from the classroom, you know, Beyonce, whatever, so in, in undergrad at Portsmouth, I would invite in methods class students to bring stuff that they heard in the news and that, you know, made them think about some. And what I realized is that even if they don't know the names yet of constructivism, realism, idea, what all of that blah, Mainstream knowledge carriers are already reproducing these approaches, these paradigms, and even these canonical thinkers. It doesn't require actually that much time to tell them this is what classical IR looks like, whatever. Like, And so I think sometimes we underestimate the fact that we need to spend much more time in teaching them something else than those traditional approaches. Those you can learn by heart. And even now, again, like let's not talk about AI because I don't even understand how it is, but just Wikipedia, whatever, like the time it takes you to look up stuff that is, you know, agreed knowledge is three seconds. Back in our days, we had to flip through, you know, the cards, index cards in the library, whatever. It was a different time. So I think sometimes this idea of, no, they need at least to be marketable, to know the disciplines that takes you literally, I can do that in three weeks, honestly. It doesn't take that much. So I, I do think that, Again, it might not just be decolonial thinking in and of itself, but it taps into an invitation to radically rethink what it is that people need to walk out of into the world. And I know that it's not the goal, the same as the goal of the university and the degrees they want to give for the labor market, which is, a, again, maybe a different thing. But while nobody's looking, we can, <laughs> we can try and have students do something else. Yeah. I find that so fascinating because I teach on the theories of IR course and Madeline's taught on it with me as well and that's so difficult because it's does all of that canon stuff and I start the first seminar I don't lecture on it I start the first seminar with like it's just a myth it's just a story and I try and use a Catherine Starnes work about how it's like what if we thought of it as a folk story and <laughs> not ready for that version of the of the story yet IR theory as a thing ban it mm. okay, yeah. well, that's a bit harsh but like uh, yeah, it's set up to fail. Mm. Set up to fail. There's there, and with t- asking people to do stuff, it's almost like hazing. Well, I got hazed, so now I'm going to haze you. Yeah, even if you put the disclaimer like, oh, but you know, it's not. It's quite violent, and it's probably also racist, and we should deconstruct it. But you have to, I, I because even be, apart from the theories, or but even concepts like let's say social contract, right? Still, people say like, oh, we still have to start with. But I'm like, actually, it is sufficient to teach the racial contract because Mills actually engages with all the other stuff and everybody will recognize it when you read it, even if you don't remember when you last read Hobbes or whatever, but it's there. So you don't actually have to always go back to these other guys to say like, oh, that's problematic. Just go straight to the insights we have. And then that's already an invitation. If I really feel compelled to know what Hobbes said, I will find it and it will resonate with how the majority of the people next to me think about how the world works in terms of whatever, what is it, rights and obligations, blah. Like, well, yeah. And, and <laughs> it's there. You like, pick up a recent IR journal, which has a high impact factor, and tell me where you see Hobbes in them. Mm-hmm. It's all experiments, data sets, regressions, methods. Not also. all. That's the emphasis. It's not. Mm. No one's doing that hops. <laughs> I also think, though, it, it speaks to, like, what is it that we want our students to know? Is it useful for our students? Are we meeting our students where they are? Because yeah. so much of what you've also talked about there is that for our students coming in, and I noticed this so much, I noticed this even more since COVID, that students come in through an education system in the UK, which is like to quote Freya like a banking concept right this is the right and wrong answer there is nothing about opinion here you don't have an opinion this is what you should know that actually one of the first things I remember walking into a classroom last year in a seminar and they were all stressing because they didn't understand the article that I set them to look at and I was like that's also okay you're it's okay to not know and it's also okay to not agree and it's I don't understand stuff all of the time. And for them to just be like, their minds be blown at the fact that it's not that they have to remember everything and absorb everything and get everything right. And I think when you're talking about IR theory, sometimes I'm like, what's the point? 
What's the point of this? Like, how are they going to use this? Or actually, is this keeping a hierarchy of knowledge and keeping our students within those hierarchies as well? Mm. I don't know. I have a question for you guys. Mm. If, we, if we're doing the decolonial stuff and we've, we're saying that to, to develop a critical faculty amongst students requires an engagement with coloniality as it pertains to citizenship, economy, society, blah, blah, blah. How is that in the UK now in 2023 compared to before COVID? Is it more kind of intuitive or is it less intuitive for students? But I think this comes back to something I also wanted to point to you, and this might not be answering your question, Robbie, so do tell me if I'm going off on a tangent. But so many of the conversations we've had this year when we've been talking about what decoloniality means within the University of Leeds has been like, what's critical pedagogy? What's good pedagogy? What's feminist pedagogy? And the kind of overlapping of all of those things, first of all, and like thinking about what the relationality between them all is as well. But it's so also frustrating because we sit within an institution and a wider academy, which is so restricted on time and funding and so much of its work is about growth rather than sitting and thinking and having conversations and really engaging in what we find ourselves in, be that in the discipline or in the institution. And I think it's only got worse since COVID, in my opinion. Yeah, I especially also because we do say like it's important to foreground what students want, right? And it's also good, I think, to... So I do that, apart from them having to fill out these stupid feedback forms every time, blah, blah, all of that. But, you know, like the last class, it's genuine engagement with what they, they learned, what they wanted more of. And there is, and again, I'm teaching a master's in human rights and politics at the LSE, so it's not difficult for them to connect the big life questions mm-hmm. to why they chose that degree. So that's not the problem. It's just that especially in relation to how much they paid for it, they thought they would walk out of that degree with much more practical insight on how to go about this. Whereas we've been, and they've, they deeply enjoyed, we can see it throughout the year, the most we've offered them is like, you're asking the wrong questions. Let's sit together and try and think other questions for the time that you're back out in the world. And hopefully you'll do something else. But the doing something else, we're not going to give you a programmatic, you know, and that is a deep frustration because they, yeah, they get a bit discouraged about it to some extent because that comes on top, obviously, of the post-COVID years and the strikes that we have and all of that. So to balance the individual discovery that everything is a clusterfuck, basically, they paid a lot for it to try and understand that. But then also feeling that they have touched almost some tools to go about it in a different way. So that's the positive side. Mm-hmm. But I do feel that there is still an openness, but they still have this more consumerist approach. Like, yeah, okay, what do we do now? And we're like, just, just like you said, Madeleine, like just sit slightly longer with the fact that we've been asking the wrong questions before you want to do any policy stuff. And it's not sequential in any case, but there is something to the rhythm of the university mm-hmm. that does not, automatically map onto the commitment of the decolonial or the deeply feminist, black feminist, any of these things like projects, right? I guess that comes onto our third question, which we've kind of partly discussed, but it would be to try and push you on it a bit more. Like, what do you think are the biggest challenges when it comes to whatever we're talking about when we talk about decoloniality and pedagogy in the academy? I'll be speaking to my context, really. I think the biggest challenges how to walk the line between, on the one hand, deal with the reaction, the understandable reaction that we get when certain fundamental conventions of actually academic standing get questioned. If you think about, some people get paid a lot, but most people don't really get paid commensurate to the standing which they hope they have as an academic. Does that make sense? It's like it's all about the standing. It's not so much about the pay. Like you could do other jobs and get a hell of a lot more money. So your standing is invested in learning canons, working on certain premises, which are designed to literally make you illegible to the communities that the university is supposed to serve. So there's a you know the first universities in the European model come out of the 
priesthood, they train you for the priesthood. And so they're literally designed to separate you from the masses and become the, you know, the translator of God's voice. And most of the disciplines do something similar. And academic standing is based on that. It's based on a separation and a removal. Now, that obviously not everybody does it. There's engaged scholarship. There's all these kind of... But I'm just saying, as a basic principle of the craft that we work in, that's one of the basic principles. So that when you do your black feminist thing, for example, it challenges a lot of that. And so what, you're not just challenging knowledge, you're challenging standing and power, which then actually you know, has this not immediate but approximate and mediated relationship to power in society as a whole. So that's one thing. And that comes into play in terms of, you know, if we don't teach people Immanuel Kant, how can they be good thinkers? And, you know, like, it's good to read Kant. But all that is predicated upon that thing which the the decolonial stuff is trying to basically say that, you know, there's knowledge production, which is not actually useful knowledge and well but it's useful for one purpose and then there is a, a knowledge cultivation which is much more accordant with the ethos which we imagine ourselves to be undertaking you know reflective pluralistic open-minded skeptical in the good sense that's one thing the other side of the line is basically not ending up with a product that is an elite ventriloquist of communities And that I see to be one of the real frictions in a lot of the work that we do. And it connects to this question about diversity of knowledge and diversity of persons. And they are connected. In elite spheres, they absolutely are connected. But elite spheres tend to prefer the diversity of persons. I don't think you can get a diversity of knowledge without a diversity of persons. In elite spheres, I don't think you can. But nonetheless, elite spheres tend towards diversity of persons and not knowledge. And when I say knowledge, I mean knowledge communities. So I think that's the other thing that we're fraught with. And it's not the easiest example is some dude who just wants to get a seat around the table. You know what I mean? Screw everything else. You know, I'm your dude. If you talk about this thing, I'm your dude. That's the easiest thing, right? But there are a whole load of other much more subterranean pressures and imperatives dull compulsions which push us in that direction without us even knowing or without us wanting to be pushed there even talking about decolonial with academics you get what i'm saying in institutions is part of that and would you want would you get the podcast paid if you didn't include me and olivia <laughs> you know do, do you get what i'm saying other knowledge knowledge cultivators in different spaces so I think that line and the two things either side is, I don't, what do you think, Olivia? Does it, I mean, that's my reality. I don't know if that's yours. It is. And it's the, the first part you said speaks to the hierarchy I was talking about, right? Like if decolonial is an invitation to rethink hierarchy and not replace one presence in hierarchy with another presence. That's because that's where I think a lot of the managerial interest in the decolonial is that, right? Like the fastest way to keep everything the same is to have more brown faces doing the same shit. But I also think that as an individual researcher in community, it's not that difficult for yourself not to reproduce that, I think. And again, you need to detach your own desires from these types of standing and all of that, but that's not rocket science. It's not that difficult. The things that I find sometimes in addition to that challenging is the stuff that comes at you from the structural and institutional side is that back in the days when there was no diversity and the professors were old, white man, smoking their cigar, whatever, if you think about all the stuff they needed to do, it was not as much as the five jobs that we juggle all the time at the same. So there is something about this apparent opening up of the profession to make it less elitist but we are both marketeers, we are pastoral carers, we are, you know, paper writers, we are like all the stuff that comes together. I don't know. I don't think I ever met my professors more than once a year when I went to uni and all of them had a personal assistant. I'm not advocating to go back to those times, but those are some of the really structural, even if we've made it. But just to say that there is something about that creeps into, I think, the profession that makes that the decolonial 
work or the work in general that is inspired by the deco like faces stuff that we don't have that much control over and i think that there i would encourage a lot of people to really be more mindful of politics of refusal there is stuff that collectively we have to stop you know again the strikes but that we have to say we're actually not going to do it mm -hmm. because it's not sustainable so that's i think that's you know a more structural one and obviously again connected to what the university was set out to be doing or to be doing most successfully is a reproduction of particular elites for our societies, whatever. So, but while doing this in a more progressive way, they need to walk this, all these different diversity lines and call it decolonial or feminist or this or that or progressive. But I, I was just reading Taiwo's Elite Capture. It's that, right? Like it's, it looks different, but it's at the service of the same. And within that, because that's a personal interpretation, but I was thinking like, what's the most challenging aspect of my job? I love my job in general, but what's the most, and I hate marketing with such a passion that I've really tried to understand what about it is, is it that I, I'm not a lazy person in general, but I have like, it's visceral, but it's because it's in such opposition with anything that we try to make meaningful about knowledge cultivation. And then at the end of the road, it's about slapping a number on it or judging through feedback. Feedback is great, whatever, but I don't need to write it down. I can tell them in class or they can come and see me. We can chat. But I also know we can't cut out the marking because the whole setup is they walk out with a degree that carries in their life in a very material way. So it's not even just a judging operation. So I do that. It's an example, I think, about, again, how the structure in which we try to decolonize, and it's helpful to actually understand that that will never happen within the university. That's fine. But it goes through these micro examples of the fact that we cannot think of degrees without marks hmm. or without marking or without feedback or without judging. It's not just we'll just spend time for three years together. And after that, I trust that we've exchanged enough so you can go out into the world with your degree. Hmm. We don't do that. And that's in the hierarchy and the meritocracy that is the biggest lie as well. But so, yeah, that's what I would add to what Robbie said about this. It's set up to be quite impossible, but I also do think that as long as nobody stops us, we can try and keep doing this, but we do need to check our own desires. That's for sure. Like in this whole setup. There's like so much in there that you said. It makes me think, Madeline, correct me if I've got her name wrong. Was it Professor Mary Richardson that spoke about assessment? We saw a talk by her at the beginning of the year where she said assessment has fundamentally damaged what it means to be educated and I think that that was like so well articulated the problem with this like judgment and numbering of it all and then it speaks as well back to like what we were saying about post-covid students and how I think they're quite instrumental often about what they go to what they attend what they do right understandably because of the context in what they live in so like you can have these really, really powerful conversations with the students that are in the room, but I'm always aware of all the students who aren't even kind of in the room, right? Because they've decided they're going to answer their topic on climate change and this week's not the climate change week. So they haven't bothered to come and hear about the feminism week because <laughs> they don't want to do that essay or whatever. But yeah, it's not a question in there, is there? It's just like, so we've just so many thoughts kind of going around in my head from the stuff that you guys have said. Yeah, I also just wanted to reflect on that diverse knowledge and diverse representation and I think the university is such a microcosm of that and so many of the things that you spoke about especially with the labor of what decoloniality means and and who carries that within a university and who where the work goes with that and the way in which it has been used within a university setting in a very in the kind of the contradictory way it has as well there's so much that you guys said, which I'm just like sitting with. Thank you. I mean, I, th I think there's also a, you know, it's where it's the bounds of knowledge as well. And crisis can sometimes shrink the world rather than open it up. I'm thinking about what space we make in the decolonial stuff for prison populations, what space we make for undocumented migrants, what space we make for those places which are really, really far away from any kind of incorporation into the university system. And it's, mm. I don't take the line that decolonizing means you have to think worldly in a geographical sense. It's not, it's not nearly as simple as that. I mean, that's what the globalization literature did. 
but it's yeah. really about the spaces, the structural spaces of silence. And so when you have everybody stressed out after COVID, it closes down that necessary generosity. Absolutely mm. understandable. But it's at the point where we need to do it most. And that's mm. the issue of capacity as well. I don't know if it's myself or my students or us together, but having the crisis humbling them enough so that they are actually finally interested in the rest of the world. Mm. So that's yeah. a counter. So when it was about COVID, most of the examples I would bring them were, for instance, me being in South Africa at that time. And I was also together mm. with the Black Lives Matters researchers 2020. And whereas if I had lived all of that myself, you know, in the same living room in Portsmouth, I could have given, I guess, some theoretical insight, whatever. But by telling them that in South Africa, most people, you know, more people died of the lockdown than of the COVID itself. or And then how people looked at the flippant reactions by Boris and company and how many people died in the UK and then being able to immediately differentiate between who was dying and who not. So it did kind of help because they felt so vulnerable themselves that it, it and the Ukraine refugee crisis, similarly, I told them like, Listen, let me be honest. I am positively fascinated by everything that the European Union can pull out of his hat at the moment to welcome people. So we clearly are able to do it. But everything we said about racialization, whiteness, anti-black racism is also there. And these two things happen at the same time. So it helps us understand how that works, right? And again, because they were all up in arms and all poor people in Ukraine, you know, rightfully, whatever. But it allowed them to hear it in a moment that it was not just theoretical for them, you know, to the extent that something is not theoretical in a classroom in London, right? I have found that fascinating, but also that's also where some of the heaviness comes, right? Where they say like, oh, I wish we walked out of here with actual solutions because now we finally realize how urgent all of these things are. Mm. Are your classrooms still like that, Olivia? I think it's the moment I decided not to keep both politics and affect out of the of any mode of study mm-hmm. in a way it's, it's something that we bring to the classroom right? or at least we we make space for will so if the question is what is it that we can make space for mm-hmm. in the decolonial the feminine is is that is that we i don't make much space for devil's advocate arguments oh my gosh olivia i've had students come to me and say if i go to one more seminar where the tutor says i want to play devil's advocate like I've had students who really trip over it as a concept so I was like yes I really agree with you like I wouldn't do that but they were really kind of switched on to it and they felt exactly as you kind of just said that the thing is it's not that we cannot teach them analytical thought as something else an opinion or that we can teach them debating as something but make sure that you know how to formulate whatever position even if you don't agree with it Mm. how it relates to something that actually matters rather than just being right Mm. It's not difficult to train your students to be right. I don't think it's not that difficult. It's, it makes me think of like what Madeline was saying earlier about saying to students, like, if you didn't like it or you didn't get it, it was okay. Like, I often ask students about bringing the effective in. I'm like, did you like it? Which one was your favorite? And they look at me like it's a trick question. Do you know what I mean? Like, why on earth does she ask whether I, no, I hate it. I mean, that's fine. Right? Like, that's okay. You hate it or you didn't understand the word of it or it didn't seem to be to anything that meant, meant anything to you but I haven't worked out a good way of getting them to answer that question. So I have found though that because in the classroom I do every, if it's small enough, every week everybody speaks, right? But I never ask them a factual question about the text. I only ask like, how did it speak to the theme? What did you pick out of this, whatever? And the thing I find is that they often always start with, I liked or I didn't like. I'm like, that's actually not even the point. We can talk about your likings afterwards, right? But how, what did it make you think of? What did it trigger in your mind? Mm. And and so it always takes a few weeks before they know they can straight jump into not summarizing or not having an opinion, but just try and have whatever whatever line, whatever even sentence they they that, you know, I don't know, triggered something in their thinking. So then we collect it and then we have a conversation. But it's the judging mentality that sometimes I feel like it obstructs them to just look at a text and see what it speaks to them. So yeah, sometimes I give the example that I grew up super religious, whatever. And reading the Bible is like reading, I was going to say it's like reading Kant, but I don't want to finish that sentence. But the analogy that I'm making is that reading stuff you don't understand naturally, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you read it one month in your life and then a few years later, you might find something completely different because it speaks to you differently. Mm-hmm. So have a more, I guess, 
spiritual approach almost to how texts can speak to you. That's the way I found that students don't feel judged about their own reading of it, but also manage to listen more carefully to what others are bringing because it's, there is no competition in liking, not liking, or having the right answer. But it's almost random how they interpreted it this time, and they can count on others' interpretation to be an addition to theirs. And I've had a lot of texts completely, not that I didn't get them fully before I assigned it to them, but they have takes on it that I was like, oh, wow, yeah, that's in there, right? But if I were to ask them a factual question or if I were to ask them whether they liked it or not, then I don't, then we don't get these nuances. So that that's something that's been helpful. Like, how did it speak to you? Like, what did it say? Mm. And then only afterwards, am I interested whether you liked it or not? It's not even the point that much. Mm. I don't know. That's helpful. I love that. I think I'm going to try and introduce some of that kind of phraseology in when I'm talking about some of their readings and see if that that makes for a more productive conversation. Actually, when I did the IR theory module, I gave the piece that you wrote with colleagues, Olivia, for foreign policy. And there were so many different antidotes that they could take from it. And it was so interesting to see how which students took what from that. Yeah. And that was, I thought, such a creative way of getting them to engage mm. with snippets as well. I think we were going to ask about kind of power and privilege, but I feel like a lot of that's been addressed. We've been talking about kind of hierarchies and stuff. So Madeline, I don't know if you want to go into kind of a language question, maybe. Well, actually, I was going to go with this one because this is big and bold. How do we support reimaginings of global politics in our teaching? I think, again, the geographical spread is really important, but it shouldn't be fetishized. And I would actually come back to what you were just talking about in terms of effect. But again, this it depends on what kind of student demographic you have. But I'll give you an example of what I mean. When I was in New Zealand, I worked in New Zealand for a little while, and I knew some of the people from this predominantly Māori group called Black Power. It's Mangukaha is their name. And most people, if anybody's ever seen Once Were Warriors, the standard is kind of like Disney Maui, but on crack. That's the usual, that's the kind of image. It's like Black Power, urban kids, very, very rough and ready dealing with incredible violence, suppression, poverty, absolutely no saints themselves, but dealing with all this with some kind of social justice mandate. And I knew one of the spokespeople for for the Wellington chapter of Black Power. And most of the students that I taught at the university there, most of them were law students because it's a big law thing there. And they didn't even do jurisprudence in their law degree. So it's so dry. So they used to come and do like politics and international politics and whatever mm-hmm. as their kind of interesting course. So I brought this spokesman up to the university to, you know, to talk about his work in the class. And we'd agreed that we would do that as a kind of recompense for some of the stuff that he would help me with with my research. And he knew it. And I knew it, that the purpose of that encounter was simply to put in front of the students a visual caricature, which then actually spoke back to them in more philosophically salient and politically urgent terms than they could imagine themselves. And that's what the students said at the end. And one come up and said to me, the one thing I've learned from this is that if ever someone like this dude comes across my court, you know, I will actually stop for a minute and presume that in principle this dude has some kind of intellect and knows about their situation in ways which we in the court might not. So I think the imagining thing is really, to my mind, about that. And of course, there is a geographical importance in it especially if you're in core countries, right? That absolutely is. But it can't just be that. Because you could also have international elites, you know, like how the cost of good housing in Accra is the same as the cost of good housing in in DC. It's the same as good housing. You know what I mean? It's like them international elites are not so different, right? So, you know, the people who come circulating around the core countries ain't necessarily going to give you those kind of things. 
See what I mean? So, yeah, the geographical spread, I think, is really, really important. I'm not belittling that at all, but I'm also saying there's something much more immediate, intimate and fundamental about dealing with imagination, right? Which pertains to what Olivia started off our conversation with, which is this distinction between life and death, right? Mm. You know, is it only that the people who we presume are disposed towards death that they, they can't say nothing? I would add to that that the same way that we understand that filling a boardroom with brown bodies does not say anything about us having changed radically whatever that boardroom is supposed to do. That's for me where our discussions about globalizing, internationalizing, diversifying, it's not rocket science. Like we can explain it literally in three seconds. But then again, like depending on, on where we speak from, but if again, I speak from the heart of Babylon, that is London. And now I will even speak to, to my own experience, right? If we, if we want to train ourselves as students to ask the question, who's not in the room and why, then we need imaginaries that allow us to think that with a sense of urgency, like Robbie said, right? So on the one hand, that would mean that we find ways to approach the worlds, and that doesn't need to be international. It can be the different worlds where we live locally as well, as students rather than aspiring experts, and I think that's especially a challenge within a university system that is geared towards making us experts, but also walking our students into being experts. Mm-hmm. And because the question of language came up, I think, especially in places where people can move through the world with just mastering one language, you can be the nicest person on planet Earth, but you cannot even imagine what it means to be vulnerable, to have to express yourself in a different language or to try and understand somebody else in a different language. And I think it's the same with, oh, I'm going to be an Asia expert or I'm going to be a whatever expert. It's like, how can we make learning an invitation to move to the world as students? Because I think that's the one that makes us more committed to to the stakes of life and death rather than... And that speaks, I think, to a lot of the image within both, I think, anti-racist and, and decolonial scholarship mm-hmm. that is to do with capture or extraction, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of our knowledges, how we're, especially if we diversify even more, are about extraction mm-hmm. and are about capturing, knowing what it is. So I would say that that the actual really challenge is, yeah, to proliferate or approach it in abundance, but the way we do it and the purpose for which has to be something radically different mm. and wanting to know more, just to know more, to control better, something like that, mm. right? So I would say in very practical terms, it could really mean that we organize many more of our degrees around also learning other languages, mm. not in CIA style where let me train you in Arabic so you can go. <laughs> You know, like, but what does it mean to, I don't know. And for me, recently, it's been mostly a broader BTS, but, you know, it's been like COVID. I was just watching so many more shows from other parts of the world than just the Anglosphere. And just, I don't know, and I'm an IR scholar for a while now. You fell in love with K-pop. Yeah, I was going to say that. I have no shame. (laughs) I have no shame. I'm like a faithful follower of of Netflix and others. (laughs) Like, But the shift from... The Anglo-Eurosphere, American, whatever, of, of the consumption of this, knowing of these societies mm. that shifted radically by watching Chinese, Korean, mm. Taiwanese, Thai, you know, shows. Apart yeah. from the fact a lot is also similar, but a lot is also different. But just as a person, I was like, there's so much I don't know. But it was also not like, oh, I need to find out everything now, whatever. But just, and it's the same when you, when, when you learn languages, mm. I guess, right? But again, they're like the desires that we carry within the academy is like, oh, can I be a, you know, East Asia expert now? You know, Olivia's <laughs> going to write that, that, that journal article, which is waiting to be written about how different variants of K-pop map onto liberalism, exactly. realism and constructivism. Exactly. <laughs> so on a more serious note, though, it has pushed me, I think, to, to try and figure out what I want to figure out about coloniality. Mm when it's not limited to, you know, the white world versus the black world or north mm-hmm. or south. Mm-hmm. And there is something there that allows us to understand the present condition of coloniality when we look at places like South Korea. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be an expert of that, but I become a student again of coloniality in a way that allows... So for me, that's what IR is supposed to be about, right? Like that you, for some reason, you want to find out something, but that reason should not be controlled. But maybe, yeah, in the fight against the colonial... Mm. 
we need to keep this open mind, right? But how do we do that without just desires of mastery or just desires mm-hmm. of capturing and, and fixing and then transmitting? Mm-hmm. I don't know if we digressed from the imagination question, but it's somewhere in there. No, it's it's totally in there. And actually, like something that you both said, but I think touching on Robbie said, reminded me of, I did some interviews with, with high school students across the UK and how they engage with social media activism. And if they were learning through this. And I remember having a conversation with a student in London who said that he'd seen he was of Lebanese heritage and that his family had always followed the Israel-Palestine conflict, would had been always very pro-Palestine, had always talked about it within their house, but then that he'd seen it on social media. And then from that, they decided to go and join a protest march that was happening in London. And he said... And then I realized that my dad was political. Like it made me realize my dad was political. And then I went to the march and I realized I'm political. And I just remember like, he was like thumping his chest at that time. And I was like, ah, this is like, this is effect, right? This is like the politics. This is where a young person, this is where a person realizes that they are also global politics. They are also politics within that. And I just thought it was like a really powerful moment. So what you were saying there, Robbie, just really spoke, I don't know, to that for me as well. Actually, briefly on that, because I, you know, obviously we help students to write the dissertations. And the thing that they, that, that I, that I sometimes have to try and curb is that once they have the realization that the experts are not just the people in the books, mm. but the actually living people, it is, mm. let's say that they're interested in asylum seeking, mm. their reflex is to say, I'm going to go and interview people, or whatever. And that's, I think, what I meant with, with the extraction. Mm-hmm. That it is so important to, it's not just about having access or paying attention to those who are not in the room, but what are the models? So often I say, like, I think they're traumatized enough to not have to answer your question for a frivolous yeah. dissertation. But there's other ways in which they've already spoken in a million ways that you mm-hmm. can tap into, right? Like, I try to be constructive. I guess it's it's to re-underscored this idea that it's not sufficient to be interested in more than that what we're already interested in. But how can we also, these ideas of hierarchies, but also like the right we feel we have, mm. the right of access. Mm. I find that especially in the more humanitarian, human rights topics, whatever, right? Like when, when their politics is already on point, how do we manage that where it's not just about, oh, just because you're interested, you have the right mm. to actually reach out or interview. And I have found that an, an additional layer that is a bit challenging, right? And that comes again, I think, with elements of knowledge production rather than cultivation. Okay, thank you both so much. That was so wonderful. Thank you for your time. Have a lovely weekend. So thank you again to Olivia and Robbie. That was such a wonderful way to finish our series, Decolonial Approaches to Teaching and Learning. We'll be coming with one more summary episode where we look at some of the things we've learned um, and have some reflections from this series. And then we'll be back in the autumn of this year with our next series, which will be on creativity, criticality and care. So we've got a few guests for that lined up already and we're really excited for that. A final thank you to Decolonising Development Cost Action Group for sponsoring the series. 